Bike racing is back, and here at VeloNews, we have access to some of the most exciting mass participant bike events out there. That's right, the Roll Massif family of eight events for road, gravel, mountain bike, even fun rides. And if you sign up for VeloNews Active Pass, you get 25% off registration to any of the Roll Massif events, plus free entry to the Elephant Rock Grand Fondo going on on June 6th. Uh, this past week, I went and did a course recon of the Wild Horse Gravel event, which is coming up here on May 15th out in Debec, Colorado. 50 miles of awesome gravel riding. There was something for everyone. Single track, double track, rocky stuff, technical stuff, fast stuff. It was a really awesome time riding my bike. I think you should definitely put Wild Horse Gravel on your list. I believe it sold out for this year, but for 2022, check it out. Anyway, you can get more information on Roll Massif events by going to rollmassif.com. And if you want to sign up for Active Pass to get that 25% off registration to any of the Roll Massif events, please go to velonews.com forward slash Active Pass. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on a, uh, a home away from home recording of the Velo News Podcast. I'm up here in Steamboat Springs at the uh, home away from the home away from home, a uh, little mini staycation um, with the family. And I got to say, it's great to be up here. And I'm also entering a new era, which is the fully vaccinated era. Um, I'm fully vaxxed, got my second shot about uh, 10 days ago. Didn't feel that super the day or two afterwards, but I feel great now. And uh, I recommend all the listeners out there, please sign up, get your vaccinations, get on with life, get back to it. Um, still practicing social distancing and wearing a mask in public, but I got to say just like the weight that has been lifted off my back of, you know, traveling and going to places, it, it feels flipping great, everyone. Um, we got a busy packed show to get to today. Um, we have interviews with Annemiek van Vluten and Mike Woods. I spoke to Mike Woods about his thrilling Liege Beston Liege and his run at the Classics. Saive O'Shea spoke to Annemiek van Vluten about the Classic season and what she expects this year. That Those two interviews are coming up second half of the show. But before we get to those interviews, we have to break down the final classic of the spring campaign that of course Liege Beston Liege happened this past Sunday it was a thrilling race for both the men and women we saw all sorts of just thrilling dynamics going on in that front group and uh, here to break down that race and others we have Jim Cotton and Andrew Hood Jim I'll start with you you were writing the race report for VelaNews.com, watching both the men's and women's races intently. In that men's race, we've seen this happen a few times with the Roche of Focans being the decisive climb, but really it seemed like it was like a mix between the Roche of Focans and then this hilly, false, flat, concrete, windy section afterwards. You know, as a watcher of bike race, what were the dynamics that you saw at that moment of the race and into the finish? Michael Woods, uh, he he kicked it all off on the on this Rocho Faucon, which is the kind of new final climb, about fifteen k from the end, and he brought out this group of five uh, going over this tough, kind of grippy, rolling, like horrible concrete road, which just kills like all your speed. And um, basically, him and Ala Philippe worked pretty much did most of the work while uh, Valverde sat on the back and did nothing, uh, and kind of pulled them clear. And behind that. It seems like, I don't know if the headwind was playing into it or anything, but uh, there was a chase group of about 20 and they just never 
got it together to pull them back and it came down to that five up sprint and um the headwind in the sprint i think played played a factor as well because uh came down to Roglic, Pogacar, Goldu, Valverde and Woods and basically Pogacar was last man in the kind of in the lead out and he got all the protection from the wind and he timed it perfectly to sprint to the win. I was so uh, so blown away by that final sprint because Valverde let it out and then Mike Woods came on strong. We're going to hear from Mike Woods later about what happened in that sprint. And for a moment there, I was like, okay, Mike Woods is going to win this. And then boom, just before the line, Alaphilippe and uh, Pogachar came around. Hoodie, you know, watching this race, watching the replay, um, you know, what was your reaction to Pogachar's lightning quick sprint, especially when, you know, up until like 50 meters to go, it seemed like he and Alaphilippe were kind of, uh, you know, maybe timing it a little too late. Yeah, that was, that was a surprising sprint on many levels. I was most surprised to see Valverde somehow get stuck in the front wheel. I mean, you know, Valverde is supposed to be this KG veteran. It's like that's the last place you want to be in a sprint with a headwind. Um, and then to see Pagachar on the final wheel behind Alaphilippe, I thought uh, maybe he was in a bad position there, but obviously he showed us wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, I was just absolutely stunned by that victory. I mean, to me, it just elevates Pagachar to this other level. I mean, he's so big right now. In fact, I'm doing a story right now for Villanews.com that uh, talks about you know where we can replace where we can place. Pogacar, you know, kind of in the hierarchy of, of not only in today's peloton, but how he compares to other riders in the past. And to me, he's a generational rider, and we're seeing it in almost every race that he uh, starts. He's racing to win every race. He's winning monuments. He's winning Grand Tours. This guy has no limit of his potential, and he's a throwback. He reminds me of a rider who can win an all-terrain. And he reminds me a little bit of Greg LeMond. I, I was, I'm not that old that I was around in the Greg LeMond days, but I do remember seeing and, and hearing about LeMond. Just kind of how Pogacar is this, he's a kid, he's young, he's just a freak on a bike. And it seems like that nothing sticks to him. He's like the, you know, he's like the Teflon uh, patron of the Peloton. And we'll just see, you know, if he can remain fresh, remain young, well, remain uh, healthy and uh, keep his mind in the right place and not kind of face some of this burnout some of these guys face in the peloton. I think Pogacar is the guy that's going to win five Grand Tours in a row. Yeah, it was an interesting stat to come out of Liège that this was the first time that the current Tour de France champion had won Liège since 1980 with Bernard Hinault. Jim, you wrote a piece about this um, and about Pogacar and Roglic, because let's not forget Roglic is the defending Liège champ, about how the new format at Liège and the dynamics going on with Grand Tour racing, we're seeing this new dynamic, which is, um, you know, the Tour de France champions also being extremely competitive in these one-day classics. What do you make of this? Why do you think this is going on? What's your overall assessment of, uh, you know, Tour de France guys being in the mix there at Liège-Bastogne-Liège? Well, I think the the first thing is, I guess, Liège in terms of the monuments or the classics is is the race which is best suited to uh, to the kind of Grand Tour riders. The climbs are kind of slightly longer, slightly more, more gradual. But I think with Roglic and Pogacar, they really are just a, a different, like like Hoodie sort of said, they're, they're kind of a different, type a whole new type of rider which we just didn't have uh maybe even five or ten years ago and um i think that's testament to the fact that 
in Grand Tour racing, it's a more equal kind of field. There's no one team that's as strong anymore. And it, it does come down to kind of Grand Tour leaders that can sprint, that can climb, that can time trial, that can do everything. I mean, when when Pogacar went on to his Tour de France win, he won a stage that was very similar to how Liège played out, uh, kind of from a four or five up sprint. And he showed then as well that he can sprint, he can climb, he can do everything. And I, I just think it's a just the way Grand Tour racing has changed and that's impacting the way uh, classics is the cla- the way they go into the classics as well. Yeah, I think it also is just a, di- you know, like you said, it's a testament to the dynamic skill set of the Grand Tour guys right now. I mean, you know, I rarely saw Chris Froome, you know, sprinting for classics wins during the uh, heyday of his career. And even before that, I can't remember the last time there was uh, a Tour de France champion. You know, we've, we've seen, we've definitely seen Grand Tour guys and Tour de France guys like make the front group at Liège. And even in an old format where it finished to Ans, you know, that final climb, you know, you'd see uh, Contador and you'd see Nibali, you know, in those front groups and, and making those selections. But having that turn of speed to be able to win a sprint, I feel like is something that we haven't seen before. And the fact that we have this new format for Liège where, you know, the last climb comes, whatever, 12 Ks from the finish. Um, if you put a Grand Tour champion on that climb and how they have the the speed to be able to survive it, then, you know, it's sort of kind of a lottery coming into the finish and it comes down to the timing and sprint. And Pogachar is just sort of on another level right now. I mean, uh, Hoodie, why do you think this new finish at uh, Liège may play into the hands of someone who would be good at a grand tour. I mean, what, what are, what's your assessment of why this dynamic is shifting at this race? Yeah, I was kind of, uh, the jury was still out for me in terms of uh, if I like this new fin- finish or I kind of prefer the old school uh, finish we've grown accustomed to it on. And uh, I have to say, you know, after watching the race Sunday, you know, it, it's convinced me that this race, the way the format is now, it's, it's, it just makes for a more exciting finale, less predictable. I mean, you might have a scenario one year where somebody just sits on the wheel and then wins Liège without taking a pole in the last uh, 15Ks. You know, that that will probably happen someday um, in this new format. But I think it's, uh, you know, it just opens up the race to different kinds of winners and it just makes a completely different kind of uh, a, a race where it's not just controlling the bunch until the base of the final climb and whoever has the legs to get up that last hump wins. So, you know, how does it, uh, to answer your question, you know, how does it uh, favor the Grand Tour riders? But actually, I don't think it actually does, really. I mean, it's, uh, I think it favors guys like Pagacha that have that finishing kick. I think it's going to favor guys like, you know, now Valverde in his prime could win here every year because it's someone who can go that monument distance and then have that finishing speed like an Philippe right now is obviously the prototypical uh, kind of winner as well. Well, I mean, two of three uh, of these Hilly Classics have seen course changes in the last few years with uh, Amstel uh, removing the final Coburg and then Liège removing the final climb to Ans. We still have Flesh Wallone finishing with the Murduhui. I wrote a column this past week arguing why it's time to ditch the Murduhui finish and uh, maybe, you know, rejigger the race. Of course, people on the internet were none too happy about that. But I do think you can look at both of these races, a testament that, hey, you know, when you move, when you shake up the finish, when you change a course that's been that way for, you know, 
decades where the entire peloton knows how to race it when there's a final climb and everyone knows the dynamic pretty much that's going to play into it you can have thrilling finishes and i mean amp still had to be decided by an electron microscope and now here at liege five really strong riders coming to the finish for a sprint so i think it stands as a testament to switching up the course every few years to uh, prevent the peloton from totally engineering um the race and i think that the organizers of Flesh Malone should take note. Um, we also saw a thrilling finish in the women's Liege Best in Liege with a front group of some of the strongest women out there coming into the finish. And Anna Vanderbregen of SD Works, you know, normally would be the one to watch to win this race, played the domestique card and she set the pace going up Rocha Focans, totally decimated the group, got back on the front um, in the false flat and put in another pull to make sure that Mariana Voss and some other riders were dropped and then drove the whole thing to the line to set up her teammate, Demi Fullering, who won the sprint. And, you know, we wrote on the P on the site about how this is sort of a passing of the torch, how Vanderbregen, you know, is such a brilliant tactician. Um, Jim, I mean, what's your overall assessment of the women's Liege best on Liege and the big talking points coming out of this race? I think, um, yeah, the big one was that perhaps that Vollering has been sort of knocking on the door of this big win all season. I think she's come twice, twice, and she's come in the top five like another two times. And she's never quite just had that final kind of piece of luck. And um, it was almost like uh, Anna van der Bregen was sort of not gifting her the win, but was was really working to help her kind of to position her for it. And um you know, she got uh, Vollering got the perfect lead out for it, and um, she she delivered, and she does fit that sort of mold of Anna van der Bregen. So it'll be interesting to see how it works in that team um, when van der Bregen steps into playing the uh, director as well. Uh, I guess the other thing that stuck out to me was Kazia Nyuadama. Like she was very active in the final. She attacked a lot and kind of helped get rid of Voss over the final climbs, and. Uh, there was she just it looked like she just kind of mistimed her sprint and hit the wind too early and it was a shame for her because she all through the Ardennes she's she's been really close as well and she was kind of due a big win so I guess she's probably come away from the Ardennes a little bit frustrated of just not quite capturing the result another storyline I was looking for is you know look Annemiek van Vluten best climber in the World Tour Peloton over the last few years. When they were on these big final climbs, there was part of me that was like waiting for her to go kapow and just drop everyone and ride away from the field. And she tried on the false flat section on that, you know, that heavy road, as they say, after the summit of Rocha Falcons, and she couldn't do it. And you saw her doing the Annemiek van Vluten thing of out of the saddle, pushing a big gear, wrenching her body around, really torquing on the bicycle. And it's just like, you know, last year, that type of riding style and that type of effort produced speed that dropped everyone. And this year, it's like doesn't drop everybody. You know, Vanderbregen was right there and Fullering was right there. And Nuya Doma, I think, was yo-yoing, but was able to follow that pace as well. And so, you know, maybe it's a storyline of uh, Annemiek van Vluten just isn't as strong as she was last year. Or maybe some of these other women have caught up to her. Oh, also, Lisa Longo-Borghini was right up there as well. And so, you know, van Vluten, such an impressive rider over the last few years, just seems like maybe she's just not at the same level where she was. And, you know, maybe that's build up to the Olympics. Maybe that, who, who knows? Uh, but I thought that was another interesting dynamic in the front of the race. Anyway, liege Bastogne liege was great. 
this was a race that I used to uh, sleep halfway through and just watch the finish. I did not watch it live this year because I had daddy duties, but I went back and watched the replay and it was thrilling. It was great. And it capped off what I think was a very good classic season. Um, you know, whenever the classic season ends, I'm always a little bit sad. But when we look back at this classic season, guy, I mean, guys, I mean, what are the what are the storylines? Can we anoint a winner of um, classic season, you know, between Strada Bianca into the cobbled classics, into the hilly classics? Is there a team or a rider that we feel like we can anoint as the winner? Hoodie, what's your assessment of the big one days? The winner is the cycling fan. I mean, this was, I think, one of the most uh, competitive and diverse classic seasons we've seen really for both the men's and the women's. There wasn't one team that dominated everything. There wasn't one rider who blew the socks off everyone. Uh, everyone at the start of the season thought it was going to be Vanderpool and, uh, well, Van Aert to uh, smash everybody, and that didn't happen. And the Ardennes Classics I thought were great. Um, you know, we've been poo-pooing the, the Ardennes over the last couple of years, saying they're boring and predictable and blah, blah, blah. But, man, the races, you know, starting Brabantse all the way through uh, through uh, the edge have been great. And that's that's encouraging because that just kind of extends out this great period of one day racing. And I was thinking the other day, I don't know if you guys agree with this. You know, what a, a good way to end the classics would be to have one more race and to try to like link in all the best bits of all the classics into one race course. I don't know how long that race would be. But imagine if you went over Liège into Amstel Gold, out to the route of Flanders, and then maybe ended through the Arenberg Forest into the Paris-Rove uh, Velodrome, you know, and offer like a million-dollar prize for that race. How good would that be? I mean, that would be the way to cap off the classic season. I like it. It would be 350 kilometers long, but yeah, a million-dollar prize. I think that uh, it would be great. We could create some sort of omnium system with this final race awarding double points or something, and uh, that would crown the official king and queen of the classics. If there are any... Carto- you know, amateur cartographers out there in the um, podcast audience, I say take Hoodie's Challenge where, you know, you have uh, Liège and Amstel and Flanders and Arenberg Forest and see if you can link up, a, you know, maybe a cool Strava route on something like that because I'm with you, man. That would be great. The super classic. Uh, Jim, what do you make of it? Do you think that anyone in you know, either men's or women's field, anyone team or rider, do you feel like is emerging from the classics as the outright victor? Well, just firstly, back to Hoodie's, uh, Hoodie's point, I'd like to see the cartographer work in a bit of uh, Strada Bianca and uh, Milano San Remo as well. Uh, just, you know, maybe a bus transfer somewhere on the way. But uh, for best for best rider in the men's in the men's one, I'd say it's got to be Wout van Aert, really. Uh, there's... When the Cobble Classics moves into the Ardennes, there's kind of a shift in the type of rider that you see appearing, and Wout well, kind of managed to span span them both really to some extent. Um, and you know, he took uh, took like two two big wins, uh, so he would be the rider for me. And for on the women's side, I'd say maybe Mariana Voss, maybe a Jumbo Visma double. She she got two big wins as well. Um, or failing that, probably Anna van der Breggen because she just bossed everything. Yeah, it's tough. You know, when you start to add things up, you're like, okay, Annemiek van Vluten won some big races. Elisa Lungo-Borghini won races. Our very, you know, Ruth Winder on the podcast last week won big races. It is, in both the men's and women's, a testament to parody. I'm with you that Wout van Aert won two big races, but 
boy, I, I bet he'd trade both of those victories for having won Flanders. And um, you can't really point at one person and say, okay, they were the outright best. So chapeau to you, 2021 classic season. I think this is going to be one for the history books that we're going to reference again and again as a model for parody. Um, hey, guys, before we get to our interviews, a couple of talking points, lightning round. I wanted to buzz off of you first. Liege Beston Liege in the lead up to the Rochefaucons. We saw Richard Carapaz break away. Ineos just bossing the field. They they lit things up over uh over uh oh La Redoute, split the field, sent Carapaz up the road. He does a super tuck for a fraction of a second and gets DQ'd and the internet explodes. Hoodie, what's your take on the UCI's decision? to uh, kick Richard Carapaz out of the race for this momentary super tuck. Yeah, I think it was a little bit a case of overreach, overzealous uh, kind of red card there. I thought that, I mean, I haven't seen the exact images of for how long he did the super, the alleged super tuck. Uh, I, I saw only one still photo and it didn't, you know, it seemed like that he quickly got out of that position. So it wasn't like he was uh, abusing it or, or, flagrantly breaking the rules so i thought it was a case of overreach and you know it's ridiculous that you're going to kick someone out of a race for something as minor as that i mean give him a yellow card warn him you know maybe a fine you know get the message out there it's like we're enforcing this you don't kick someone out out especially after the race is over what is what would have happened had he won you know you don't disqualify the winner for something they did 25 case to go on a relatively innocuous d- descent. So I, I think the super tuck, yeah, okay, I can buy into the rationale of why it's banned, but you don't start uh, disqualifying riders in a race like Liege. Uh, Jim, the question for you. So super tuck overreach by the UCI, I think we can all kind of agree on that. I mean, it's definitely a sign that they're very serious about enforcing this. Holy cow, don't anyone super tuck ever. Uh, David Lapartienne is going to show up in the car next to you if you're super tucking on the group ride and uh, and call you out and kick you out. Jim, we got Tour Roman D just started. Prologue, Rowan Dennis wins the opening stage. Chris Froome, more than a minute back in a fairly short time trial. We're getting messages coming out of Israel Startup Nation that, hey, you know, he's still building for the tour. Uh, what are you making of Froome Watch 2021 and where old uh, Froome is in his tour prep. Yeah, the latest chapter of Froome Watch, I, I saw him do his time trial of uh, Romedy just before we spoke. And uh, as soon as the cameras cut to him, he just, I'm sorry to say it, but he just looked pretty shabby. Like he never looked great on a bike, but he looked so uncomfortable. And I think I think the when I uh, turned off the TV, the, the fastest time was about five minutes and Froome was on six minutes. So that's a minute extra on a five minute TT. He's got, he's got, eight weeks to get ready for the tour. And I think there's no way that anyone can say he's ready or can be ready in the next eight weeks. And I think at some point, Israel startup nation need to kind of consider whether there's any rearranging of his schedule just, just to make it, you know, worth his time and worth the team's time. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, it is looking more, you know, the, the clock is ticking and there aren't that many days left on the clock until the Tour de France. And, and if Chris Froome keeps looking this bad, I wonder if they'll change tack and bike back Mike Woods or Dan Martin or uh, just sort of, you know, sh- change stuff up. Because right now he's definitely not looking like a contender for a stage win, a top 20 finish, anything like that. You know, Roman D is a tough race. 
keep an eye out for Saturday's stage. Summit finish. That one looks like a real breaker. And we'll, I guess, have more of an assessment of where Chris Froome is. But um, not looking great on the Froome watch. But we're going to continue Froome watch because, hey, we like Chris Froome. Everyone loves a comeback story. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's a big story in cycling right now. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for your takes and analysis on the classic season. It was uh, a great season and I appreciate your analysis on the site and on the podcast. We are going to now hear from first Mike Woods and then Annemiek van Vluten from the classics. We'll be back next week. Now joining the podcast after his exciting fifth place finish in Liege Bestone Liege, it's Mike Woods. Uh, Mike, thanks for setting aside some time today for uh, for coming on the Velo News podcast. No problem. Thanks for having me, uh, Mike. Yesterday, thrilling race, um, a ton of action, and you were right in the thick of it. You know, attacking over the Rocha Falcons climb, making it into that front group with uh, Tade Pogacar, Alejandro Valverde, and the others. You know, um, take me through. What was going on in that front group after you guys separated over the final climb in the run-in to Liège? What are some memories you have from the dynamics in that group? Um, take us inside those last, you know, 10Ks. Yeah, I think there's quite a bit of cohesion, actually. Um, with the uh, On the concrete climb after the the top of the ro- proper Rochefoucauld, I mean, Rochefoucauld's kind of broken up into two separate climbs and the first section i i managed to tack over and and uh get the sep- get get the separation for the entire group but then when we got on the second one we'd already started working together but i tried attacking again on the concrete section unfortunately uh there was a headwind and that kind of nullified my attack because uh, guys were getting quite a sit in, the, in behind and when alfleet bridged across everyone else had to follow and uh, from there, particularly because of the headwind and the downhill, it was very difficult to attack. And I think everybody uh, was pretty content on trying to sort it out for a sprint. I was pretty confident in my sprint. Uh, I just had really good legs, so I felt like I had a good shot, but so did all the other guys. And so we were, we were old together. Um, I tried one dig, and I think I was really the only guy to try to attack with about 1.3K to go. Uh, I slotted off to the side, right side of the road, uh, and go do didn't pull through. And so that gave me a bit of just a, uh, some, some space. And I tried launching attack. I've tried that move before to success in in the Vuelta last year. So I was really hoping I'd get it, but Alphalip, uh, was just so uh, confident and also just on everything. And he, uh, quickly jumped on my wheel, covered it nullified it and uh yeah then we were just all looking at each other for that final sprint i know i was about to say i love that uh, cheeky move going on the other side of the road i don't know if there was like a traffic des- i'm trying to remember if there's a traffic div- divider at that point but i was like oh look at mike woods go surprising them all yeah it, it's worked in the past but um it, you just need a moments of he- moment he- of hesitation from the group behind but unfortunately especially with that headwind uh if you were to attack and anybody followed for just a moment, then the guys behind that that rider would receive quite a draft, uh, which is why it ended up just being such a, a straightforward sprint in the end, from uh, uh, and as opposed to a, a crazy attacking finale. Um, but yeah, no, it was uh, it was it was exciting even being there. You know, it was nerve wracking. Uh, I, I think I, I didn't play it as well as I well I pl- I played it as well as I planned in the sprint. I was looking at Valverde 
uh, and I, my decision was to follow his wheel. Uh, coming to that last K, I said I'd, I'd stick on his wheel, but uh, just with that headwind and just with the legs that that the other guys had, it it, it meant that I I wasn't going to win. You know, it was a thrilling finish, and it came after another thrilling finish that we saw at Amstel. And it's so funny when I think about my own time covering these hilly classics. There was a period there where. These races seemed a little old and a little stuffy, you know, with the traditional finishes and sort of these routes that the Peloton had had decades to really dial in. And now all of a sudden, with some of these course changes and finishing up, you know, changing up the finishes at Liège and Amstel, all of a sudden it's like, you know, we're having to take out electron microscopes to figure out who won. There are these thrilling sprints. And I'm curious, you know, from a viewer, these races have all of a sudden become like some of the most edgier seed stuff to watch in all of uh, World Tour Cycling. I'm really curious, from someone who has raced these events numerous times, what these course change-ups and these finishing change-ups have done for you guys. Um, what, like, what are the biggest differences that you've noticed with Liège and Amstel um, changing up the finishes and, and how it's changed the dynamics in these races? Personally, I, I liked the old course <laughs> just because, you know, finished more uphill and I felt like if I had one or two, one more kind of defining climb uh it would have benefited me and, and just because i did feel like i was one of the strongest guys on the climb but that being said i, I really enjoy them i really enjoy the fact that they've been changed uh i do find that uh the nature of the courses r- removing the climb at the end means that guys have to move earlier and w- when i first did the age labradute was less consequential uh it was less uh, of a definitive moment but now it's even though it's pretty far out guys have to move because really there's only one true climb after labradute um you do have uh one between but it's uh, it's a pretty difficult one to get separation on whereas russia Falcon is uh is really the, the one where you can create separation and all those those the, the removal of saint nicolas and the final finishing run at liege makes for you know just this this uh, more aggressive racing early on and you see that uh, it's the same in the amstel uh now that it's not finishing right up um up uh, the Kalberg and straight to the finish guys have to le- go earlier uh i felt like this year particularly with the circuits made for a bit less of uh less of a an aggre- sorry uh, less of an aggressive race um early on compared to uh the traditional circuit but i think that obviously they had to do that because of covid but still, it's it's a far more intriguing race because guys are, are going earlier, and it just makes it harder, makes it more demanding, and then you get more these more exciting finishes. So your transfer from uh, EF to Israel Startup Nation this year all of a sudden put uh, Israel Startup Nation as one of the big teams to watch in these hilly classics because of your skill set and your uh, you know veteran status of these races. I mean, what can you say about how this team adapted to um, being one of the one of the stronger teams or one of the, the teams to watch in the hilly classics? And where do you still feel like there's some room for improvement? Yeah, I think the team's been incredible in supporting me, um, especially bringing a guy like Daryl Impion as well. Uh, he's been he's been so good for me. Uh, we were working for him at Amstel. Uh, he he kind of messed up the sprint a bit, but uh, was on a really good day. And he's been on really good form. But then at Flesh and, and Liege, he was really my right hand man, uh, right hand man. And a real su- surprise for me, um, 
less so because I just hadn't been observing the races as much uh, from lo- looking at it, looking at ISN before this. But uh, is Chris Nealens? He's a guy that has just ridden exceptionally this year for me. And uh, at Flesh, for example, he did an, an incredible lead out for me, and I just just didn't follow him at the last second because I thought following Roglic was the right move. But uh, I regret that moment big time not following him. He's he's been really really strong for me. So the the team has been just it's been uh, great and it's been really really nice riding for them and i found they've really uh stepped up their level at the classics but they're all they, they also like the the guys that are, are not are not new to the team uh are a bit used to this with having dan martin uh last year you know dan still came into the classics with uh, pretty big ambitions and he, he ran a fifth at flesh and uh they they, they knew how to support him but uh, this year has just been been awesome for me. I'm really enjoying the transition. Hey, where do you come down on the uh, the flesh alone finish? So you know they change up Amstel, remove the final Kalberg. You know all of a sudden it becomes this like you know small group and crazy sprints. Same with Liege, um, take out Saint Nicholas. You know yet flesh alone is still stand with the Murduhui finish. Um, you know it's been that way for for eons back to the early 80s i mean do you where do you come down on you know should they should they change the finish do you like the murduhui finish um as just as you know personally as a cyclist what are your thoughts on murduhui oh i love that finish i I, it's a bit of my uh, a bit of a white whale for me just in that i've never won on it and i feel like it's so tailor-made for me i've just always kind of either messed up the run-in or when i've when i've nailed the run-in i've i've uh not had the legs and uh this year was a case of me just overthinking it having the legs but not not having the execution um but they have they i mean they have made minor modifications over the years even uh you know they've made the circuit a touch less difficult recently but in the past they they had it harder with a a defining climb that tim wellen seemed to always attack on and almost stick but never quite but you know, I, I do like mixing up quite a bit, but I also do like a bit of tradition. And I think, I think you got to give that one to the climbers, the punchy guys, and just, you know, uh, have a bit more of a, a standardized finish, finish on, on just one of them. The rest, the rest you can alter here and there. But uh, yeah, I like I like the, I like having the race finished on such an iconic little little bird. You know, a lot of us have watched that finish so many times. I've stood on the side of that climb and watched, you know, the guys and gals zip up it. You know. From being inside the peloton, what are the things that you know on the final ascent of the Murduhui? What are like what's going through your head, and what are you like keeping an eye out for? I'm always curious to know like what is in the mindset of a cyclist at these very specific moments in World Tour cycling, and the Murduhui I think is a very specific one. And I'm re- I'm really curious, just like what's going through your mind, and what are you keeping an eye out for as you guys go up that thing for the final time? Really depends on the day for me. Um, if I'm on a good, if I'm on good form, it goes it goes by pretty controlled. Like you, you just you're not really noticing your legs as much as you're focusing on the just the position. And even when I'm on a not great form, it's yeah. When I'm on great not great form, it, it doesn't matter what I'm thinking. I'm just often just suffering at the back. But when I'm on good form, you don't even really feel the the power that you're producing, uh, just because you're so focused on trying to hold position, um, so focused on trying to be in good position, and it is such uh there's such a fine margin on that climb for success and failure and from a positioning perspective um if you really don't nail your position uh you're behind you know 10 15 guys and even if the even if you have the best legs in the world if a guy attacks you're just not able to follow and uh yeah it's um uh, it's kind of 
yeah, it's just a, it's, it's a weird sensation because often you set your best one, two, even three minute power on that climb. Maybe not the best one minute, but one of your best, I've set my best three minute power on that climb. And if you were to ask me to go out and do, you know, 530 some odd watts for three minutes in training, uh, I would carve up and uh, I would be nervous for the training session. And all I'd be doing is thinking about how much this is going to hurt. And from a minute in, I'd just be suffering and wishing I wasn't where I was. Uh, whereas at, at this race, when you're doing the, that three minute effort, you don't even feel anything pretty much. You just finish, and then you, then it, then the pain kind of sets in. But because you're you're so focused on where you are uh, positionally, uh, the sensations are, 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 are you know, you almost don't feel them. I feel like every year there's a rabbit. You know, there's like the Richie Port or this year Roglic who goes just a little bit earlier than people are ready to go. And I'm curious, you know, when you're a veteran who's done this a million times, how do you mentally like process whether or not to go with the rabbit? Yeah, I, I almost wanted to be the rabbit this year. I think there's less of a disadvantage uh, in being the rabbit just because uh, the draft is so negligible. But um, often the guy that is the rabbit is the one that's just not at the same level as, as the very best guy. Uh, and this year, the rabbit was a guy that, you know, could conceivably have won the thing. Roglic is so strong. Um, and he did exactly what I did. But, uh, uh, yeah, it's just uh, Al Philippe has got always got that little extra gear and uh, managed to combine them. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I think it's uh, it, it's it's also tough to 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 not be the rabbit in the sense that if you're on the on the front and you do have the legs, it's almost worth rolling the dice. Just because if you don't, if you're not the first to go, uh, it can be a, in a situation where you get swarmed and then you don't get to use the legs that you have. So. It's a it is a bit of a gamble, but uh, it seems like the the very best guys always figure it out. And I heard a, a quote earlier that that was once you learn how to win on flesh, you always know how to win on flesh, and it becomes something you can repeat quite often. And clearly, Alphys figured that out. Alvarez figured that out. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be a guy that figures that out too. Well, we will keep watching and cheering for you at that race and at Romandy and at the races to come, Mike Woods. And um, thrilling classic season. It was a lot of fun to follow you and can't wait to see what you do through the rest of the season. Thanks so much, Brad. Really appreciate it. How do you prepare for a race when it's so early? Now, yeah, if it would be the Olympic Games, I would already, like, in one week before, I would start to get, go to bed really strict more early and uh, to get into that rhythm. Um, now it's also quite easy because uh, Amsterdam was really early, tomorrow is early, so you stay just in the rhythm. And yeah. I think it's better to go, uh, I, I go to bed more early in the week before. Um, but, yeah, I'm also not super strict. Like, I also know, like, one, one day without... Nah, but a little bit less hours sleep it will not kill me for the for the race. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's better to uh, to move a little bit your rhythm this week. Yeah, um, um, you mentioned obviously you've won Liège before. Um, how do you approach that race with the team on Sunday? Yeah, sorry, I cannot give away the secrets. No, but I mean, just mentally, how do you approach that? Um, yeah, I'm not that kind of person that that can answer this question actually, because. Um, yeah, you read on the course, you see where are the chances for our team, and you make a plan. Yeah. That's, that's my approach, yeah. Yeah. Where, where are the, 
to see like where all the girls will go, where the best way for me will go, um, how we can uh, play with other girls. Um, yeah, that, that, that talk starts usually when we do the recon of the course. Oh, actually, I know it already because it's not much different from other years. Um, so yeah, it's already a little bit in my head how the plan is. Um, yeah, and for Flash, I can I can give away a secret because it's the first time I went to train on the Muir of Hui. Um, it's not too far from my home; it's like a two-hour drive. But I went specially one day training and did uh, some all-out efforts there um, to try some different scenarios. So um, yeah, it, it says something I think about my uh, um, the challenge I see. Yeah. yeah so yeah. because I know I'm not the the the, the big favorite, but uh, I want to see and uh, want to have a think already about it. So yeah, my preparation and the plan for for tomorrow um, uh, started when I did that week on and that hard training there. Yeah, yeah. And as you mentioned, obviously this year it's a new team, a new environment. Um, do you feel like you've you've already settled into that environment? Yeah, I, I like to go a little bit out of my comfort zone. So, um, and uh, <laughs> when we had the team camp, it felt for me, it feels long ago, but it felt for me like the first day to go to a new school. So, like 100 people, uh, the guys, the staff, uh, everyone from the guys, everyone from the girls, everyone's together, and, and people from staff and uh, no, yeah, communication, media, uh, 100,000 people, 100 people for me that I have to get uh, to know. But um, yeah, now I'm, um, I know them and uh, I'm not all, um, but yeah, the feeling of going to a new school now, now feels like when I go here that I uh, I go to my second family. So yeah, this uh, is a nice feeling. Yeah. I feel in a warm environment. You, you, you always seem so um, confident and um, calm in all this, all situations. Was it really? Did it feel like it was out of your comfort zone making that change? I was five years with uh, Mr. Scott. Um, it was a very special, very special years. Um, I think I developed, but also the team developed a lot. Um, but uh, yeah, the motivation to change was. Um, yeah, to get a new, uh, I, I needed new energy, and I found a new energy to achieve results with this new team. And uh, yeah, I can say after winning the Warsaw Flana, it gave me goosebumps how how girls also reacted. The, the girls that added something to to this victory, how they felt part of it. Um, it was normal with Mr. Scott. Like yeah, winning is is was a bit like with me. It was a bit normal. Um, and I think it was also good to make space for uh, other talented girls like Grace Brown to step up into the leader's role and, and uh, Amanda Spratt. So it felt just like it was just time to leave. It was still it was still hard to leave because I had a really good time. Uh, but I needed myself new motivation and I also want to give more opportunities, other opportunities to the girls to step up into the leader's role. And obviously now there's many, many great um, women's teams. And um, what was it that drew you to Movistar in particular? Actually, I also want to add something to your last uh, question because uh, it's one driving force for me is also that I want to develop women's cycling. I saw, I'm sure I kept an eye on the Movistar because I knew the team since 2013, 2014, and then I saw they started a women's team. So I always kept a close look at them. And you see how they organize and that they're really well organized and super professional team, but they didn't have the 
get the re- all the results. I think um, they had a little bit lack of a leader, and but they have a great infra- uh, infrastructure. So yeah, then I I, I smell the challenge. <laughs> Uh, and on top of that, also the, the culture in, in the south of Europe usually suits me a little bit better than the culture in the in the north of, uh, of Europe. It's just for me, maybe a bit strange coming from the Netherlands to say this, but I feel more home. And actually, that's really from the first moment I felt, uh, yeah, it's like a warm bath. Um, but yeah, I also want to develop women's cycling to make it more interesting. So I think I said also in some interviews that uh, track, uh, I had a call with track, but they have already three, four leaders. So I think it's important to develop women's cycling also that more teams have leaders more teams take responsibility and I think there's a really huge step I see this year in women's cycling that there are so many teams that take responsibility in the race and they go with a plan to win the race yeah. and it makes the races way more hard and more attractive um, when I started cycling there were three teams uh, that were taking responsibility in the race and had a plan to win the race that was the team of Marianne Voss that was HTC Colombia and, and all the former uh, team mobile whatever and uh, Flexpoint I think was at that time there were three teams and all the teams just followed and now uh, yeah I was in Amsterdam it was like from the gun uh, was on fire so um, yeah um I also like it to add, add to Movistar that, um, yeah, with the lack of a leader, uh, girls that are like a little bit not ready to be leader yet, but they can, I can help them to develop and to become leaders of the future. And uh, that's also something that gives me energy, and that's also something that attracts me to go to Movistar. I see like Paula Patino here from Colombia, I see Katrin Aalerud, I just started cycling, is super talented. Uh, Leah Thomas, very strong, and then I like now also Emma Noisgaard uh, stepped up into uh, in getting a super fast sprinter. So um, yeah, it's, it's exciting to be part of this. Does this team, uh, moving to this team, make you feel like you have an opportunity to have an impact on? the future of women's cycling beyond um, your own career? Nah, it's not a motivation, but it's a nice, nice side effect, I would say. So uh, it's not my main motivation to go to this team, but um, it gives me energy. Yeah, for example, I'm training with Katrin Alut in, uh, in Tenerife, and then we're like doing some all-out uh, effort trainings together. And I see her like developing herself, like by that I share some stuff and to train together gives us both energy. Um, yeah, that, that is, gives me way more benefits than only training by myself. So, um, yeah, that uh, gives me also some, some positive. What, what sort of advice do you give your, um, your younger teammates? No, that they uh, need to do, for example, that kind of training more by feeling. Like a lot of uh, girls are like super focused on the wattage. And, but my, yeah, I usually train like uh, eight times four minutes all out. And it doesn't matter what kind of watts there are. It's about eight and four minutes and to do it like hard, super hard, maximum. And then you also develop a feeling and you develop the feeling what you can do and uh, what you are able to do also in races. So I think that's super important. And I think uh, some things you really picked up really well. When you, when you first came into the team, what was your first impression on um, the overall strength of the team and where, where they were already doing very well at? Oh yeah, I also have to add something that when I signed with Movistar, that I had so many comments about people that completely didn't understand why I would sign with Movistar, but that is something that really motivates me because I'm then just laughing that, that people are so not well informed also 
uh, really quick judging maybe and and it also motivates me like I will prove you wrong that I, I uh, take it, took a really good decision for myself um, so yeah um, that was what I want to want to add I got a lot of and and when Movistar put the picture online with me in the middle uh, of the avatar picture you know the picture yeah yeah so I was also surprised with the picture but uh, there was so strong message because all the people in there was like, oh my God, Alejandro is next to her. They put Anamik in the middle. <laughs> like they that already changed the mind of and the, all the thoughts they had about Movistar so much without, I, I didn't, didn't have to say anything. But they were like, yeah, there was super strong message. Like, oh, people put Anamik in the middle. And um, yeah, so then already people... Now, now I never get the question anymore. Like, uh, do you feel at home at Movistar? They, they, I, 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 I didn't have any question anymore about that. So it's cool. Yeah, yeah. And and the the strength of the team. What did you? Um, how did you feel the the team was already doing well? Yeah, I saw a lot of talent. Uh, like Paulo Patino became last year eight year eight in the Giro, uh, for example. Uh, Leah Thomas uh, became fifth in the time trial some years ago. Uh, I saw Emma Norskar finishing seventh in the time trial. And you know, there are also some powerhouses in the team. Catherine uh, Allen was a really strong uh, climber. So I saw a lot of talent, but uh, I also saw that uh, they maybe just need one or two percent to develop that a bit more, to be a bit more coaching. And yeah. Um, I like also said to Sebas when I the general manager um, that I like to work with young athletes. So he was thinking about to take some new, maybe some new girls on board. So like, yeah, I prefer to work with younger riders that are maybe not have the level yet, but have the talent. Then girls that are at the end of the career and just do the job and and yeah. So uh, for example, also Sarah Martin, like she surprised me in obstacles race so much. So it's only front, so strong already, so young. So yeah, that's something that gives me also energy. It's something, someone to work with. And, and obviously, on the on the men's side of the team, they've not particularly been associated with the Flemish classics. Um, do you think now with your your Flanders win, you know that the team will be more associated with you know with the with the Flemish classics as well as the other races as well? That Movistar can be seen as a team that can do all the different kinds of races. Um, yeah, it was actually a surprise when I signed it. Before I signed this team, I asked the general manager, Sebastian Unzue, like, which race would you really, really, really want to win with the women's team? And then he said immediately to be to a Flanders, which was already like, whoa, uh, surprising for me. Like, most times they say the first thing he names is a classic. So maybe he also likes to go out of the comfort zone and to win something that's not in the comfort zone of Movistar. Um, yeah, you see also development there. Uh, before they never started in Omloop at Newsblad and now they're also there. So um, they have also already a classic team. And I think uh, for the guys also, they're building the classic team. Maybe not with the results yet, but with some young guys, they're building on it. So, um, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I see uh, in a lot of ways also, like uh, in the, with, work with the performance manager, Pachi Villa. Um, I see a lot of, like, we have two times the team time trial training on the race circuit in the team training camp. So things are changing in Movistar. <laughs>